Good morning, good day, bienvenue, and welcome. You have clicked the button that allows you to listen to the man childian candidate where two fully grown men act their shoe size and not their age. My name is G-Man. Welcome to today's show, and I'm sitting across from the ever effervescent, born from a rock upon a mountaintop. This is P-Boss. Good afternoon, my bro. How art thou? Yes, and the nature of P-Boss is irrepressible. Mm-mm. What a great show that you refer to. Like. Oh. Classic. Monkey magic, for those that don't know. The remake just didn't hit it for me. None of the remakes did, Dan. Didn't? Nothing ever since. No. Now, I wonder, I wonder is that a product of, like, where we were at in our lives and and all that sort of stuff? Like, because the original, which I own on DVD, is, which I purchased from our good friends at Minotaur, (laughs) is, I guess guess campy (laughs) would be the word. It's campy. Yeah. well, it's a generational thing, isn't it? Like, he says some words too, Monkey, at some point, which, you know, is pretty politically incorrect right now. You can't say disparaging words against demons anymore, man. You just can't. It's the um, actual first time I heard that terminology. Mm. I remember as a kid going, what? What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. nuts. It's it's a funny yeah. time too because then the same sort of era was, um, you know, when Hergé was putting together Tintin and yeah. that's as campy and wonderful and there's some dialogue in there that's um, kind of pretty questionable in this day and age. But, you know, words evolve and we know they do and um, most of those words that were uh, said, <laughs> I'm not going to say them here because it's a, it's a G or PG rated program, but um, they have changed format. They were kind of mild and now they're really damn rude you can't get away with that tintin stop saying these words please but yeah Yeah. journey to the west what an amazing program i love it yeah it was it really so many iterations man they've made games out of it they made movies other series and nothing has quite captured the magic of um uh trippy taka when i was growing up man abc six o'clock come on and i don't know that was dude that was a golden era Mm. of the ABC, yeah, um, at the Australian Broadcasting, is it Commission or Company? Anyway, I yeah, I think it's Commission. Mm. For those, uh, for those abroad, uh, there was a golden era for the Manchildian candidates. In that, you had that pocket cuz where you had like Kenny Everett, you had the goodies, yes, you had Monkey, you had Doctor Who, yes. like, and that was some serious Tom Baker era too. Mm-hmm. So it was just unmissable. Um, local products. I don't even remember that show. Home that was rad. Mm, dude. Um, oh, dude, BMX is the whole thing. But we digress, and we should have really uh, begun this episode with a massive pouring of a virtual forty on the curb Indeed. for our for, for the great man, Sir Sean Connery. Big news, man. Big news in the, in our Spielbergian world here. Um, yeah, Connery's a unique chap. He Everyone knows who Connery is. Everyone can impersonate his voice by just putting a little shh on the end of nearly anything that you like. And what a man. The most handsome, powerful man that embodied manliness as, you know, James Bond, of course, and moving all the way through. What a powerful individual and... We're very saddened here at the Manchildian Candidate to see him pass. But, you know, he was 90. Was he 89 or 90, I think? Is it, I think he was 90, man. That's a fairly good... My brother. That's an innings, know. right? You know, yes. seriously. So, farewell, Sean. Thank you very much. And, um, <laughs> oh, we love him. And I watched, uh, upon learning of his death, I watched um, uh, a Spielberg film called The Last Crusade, in which, of course, he plays Indiana Jones's father. So and, well. Yeah, it was just such a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
And that's sort of, that's a nice little, easy little segue into, in fact, a topic of which we're going to be discussing uh, at a little bit of length today. Um, Peebos, what's the, what's the vibe today, my dude? Well, my friend, the, the ensuing unpacking is uh, regarding probably, I guess, what would be my favourite film, I think, if I was pushed, and that would be Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Mm. famous 1981 production. And look, we're going to explore some conspiratorial concepts uh, contained therein, one of which will be a joyous romp uh, into the the Ark of the Covenant Mm. itself. And a little peek underneath Hitler's Duna with some of his beliefs and uh, some of the organisations that were represented in in the Raiders of the Lost Ark from the Nazi Party. And sort of, yeah, fits in nicely with some of our conspiratorial thoughts, my friend. Mm. Mate, what comes up for you when I say Raiders of the Lost Ark? This is one of the most joyous film experiences that I've ever had. Really is. So incredibly young. Even from the absolute intro when the Paramount logo appears and then it slowly fades away, perfectly blending with a mountain. Uh, and then cutting into the shot of Indy oh. going through the jungle with his uh his companions who are all a bit nervous and a bit betrayed, if you wouldn't mind, you know. It's an absolute <laughs> wonderful Saturday matinee adventure. You are thoroughly thoroughly entertained from start to finish and this is uh, easily harrison's heyday the handsomest the most excellent guy you know and this was the first time we saw such an intrepid adventurer as the archaeologist we know as indiana jones it's fantastic really because it doesn't even give the precursor of indiana jones it's just called raiders of the lost ark and then of course the temple of doom and last crusade after giving episodic content but this was something else it seemed to come out of left field you know and harrison was right in the middle of being han solo at the same time you know Mm -hmm. so he was everywhere and um he really was it's a rollicking adventure and it does have some really amazing concepts all the way through it which turn out to be actual sort of historical value like with the Ark of the Covenant which we will discuss uh, shortly and absolutely I just did my little rant on it man your take on this fine you said it's your favourite film if pushed yeah I really would say it is my cuz and again here's another episode where you know P-Boss is having a spielgasm but um, (laughs) love that word what you've got with this movie is a coming together of some really interesting cinematic minds, which we'll sort of unpack in a moment. Um, another episode idea that we had discussed, G-Man, was those sorts of movies that when you come home after you've had a night out that are happen to be on that you can't turn off. Mm, mm. This is one of those. I cannot turn this off. It sits among such alumni as a Ghostbusters or Predator or Aliens mm. for me in that if this... If these shows are on, I'm screwed. I just, I have to watch it to completion. I understand. That's sitting through the ads and everything, right, on the telly. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I rewatched for this episode and what was interesting, my dude, was doing a little bit of the research, which we'll sort of discuss and unpack further. I saw some more things in this film that, that I hadn't recognized before. Again, you've heard me say it about Spielberg, but you can turn the volume off and every frame will keep you up to date with the story. It's yeah. I don't know, man. I was hardcore into comics and visual stuff back in that era too. And this was just like having this visceral 3D comic that was just, you know, jumping out at you. And yes, 
Cuzzy, I can't look away. And I can't fault it. I absolutely can't fault it. And you know what a picky dude I can be yeah. with cinema. Yeah. I just cannot fault it. So, directing, you know, art direction, sound design, yeah. editing, acting, yeah. everything, my cuz, is really not- I mean, aside from obviously a few moments that date a little bit, just technologically, I can't fault this film. It was just the pacing as well, man. It's all, There's always something. You're always invested in exactly what's happening. The characters we hadn't seen before. We haven't seen Indiana Jones, man. We haven't seen no. the evil Nazi dudes that try and steal the pendant. We haven't seen this before. So, no. and, But it's somewhat too, because I can put it into the same sort of basket for me as um, A New Hope, original Star Wars, of course, where mm. the concepts are so archetypal. They're so sort of... I don't know, they are a little bit obvious in a little way in the way that Absolutely. the story is told. But if it wasn't told that way, you'd be disappointed. And so it's got this familiarity to it. You almost know what's going to happen, but you're seeing it done in this really dynamic way. And it, yes. as I said, being it um, sort of archetypal, um, we haven't, in fact, seen it directly done like that. But it is so very, very familiar to us, you know. It's just, what a rollicking thing, man. Absolutely. It's fair to say that it's a deep reinterpretation of the hero's journey. Yes. There's no doubt about that. I mean, and, and therein lies the beauty of a movie like this. Like you said, on one hand, it's just the hero's journey that we've mm. seen a thousand times. But on the other hand, it's just so not. Um, and I guess I wanted to start by saying it sort of switches genre a little bit. Like this movie has elements of horror in it mm. and paranormal in it. I mean, you and I could do an episode probably just on the first, uh, you know, five, ten minutes where he where he gets the golden uh, idol. Mm. He's entering a facility, an archaeological facility that just suggests that there's either a paranormal aspect to it or a deep technological aspect to it. You know, all the traps that are triggered by light, yes. you know, by him interrupting light. Absolutely fascinating. And the whole way that we really don't see we don't see his face and when he's first introduced he's introduced in shadow mm. and under the shadow of the hat we see that juxtaposed with his position next to light and sunlight for the rest of the movie so it's almost as if once once he comes under the influence of the quest for the ark he becomes perhaps an archetype for or or an agent for god himself <laughs> and he's represented in a completely different way, my Goodness, dude. There's dude. <laughs> many, many scenes where he's silhouetted against the sun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the early stages of the film, he's shaded and he's sort of questionable. And he almost does come off like if you just watch that first section, you know, he's kind of like a robbing bad guy in some mm. ways. Um, amoral at best, my friend. What yes. do you think about that to start this episode? Oh my goodness, that's uh, that launched right in there, bro. That took me by surprise. Well, yeah, that's a very, very interesting point. Very, very interesting because, in, in fact, like uh, he's referred to quite a bit from his nemesis during out the film. Like he is actually a thieving bastard. <laughs> he he steals things. He goes around the world to steal things for the benefit of what he perceives as you know doing a right that belongs in a museum. So do yes. you, Dr. Jones. You know, yes. he's got this whole aspect and people just hate him stealing this. Um, he seems to be doing it for the virtuous thing of actually doing it for the artifact itself to preserve it, which is, 
yes, lovely and noble, but we get that impression. But it's actually, he never he really even tells us what he's going to do with it, you know. He may be flogging Absolutely. it off. Who knows, man? Uh, yeah. yeah. And look, you know, again, just I'm just pushing this angelic demon sort yeah, okay. of juxtaposition here. But, you know, what is throughout history, what is, what is the most common representations of, of demons or, or devils or evil is snakes, you know, and he is yeah. he's got an aversion to snakes. So, you know, the filmmakers pretty quickly sort of say, well, this is a good guy. Look, he can't even he can't even sit with the demonic motif mm. idea, but there's just so much in here. And God damn it, I'm probably reading way too much into it. But this is an example again of the work of a great filmmaker mm. who points and sort of tells you where to look, but he doesn't tell you yeah. what to see. That's right. And that leaves it to your imagination, which lets it run wild. And that's a far more satisfying experience. If you've had to think, if you haven't had your hand held, oh. like, this is this and this is this. Like, wow, I've actually had to use uh, part of my uh, noodle there. Now I'm thinking really hard and this is really great. You know, that's right. And what I like you right. saying there, actually, um, just to digress ever so quickly, was the the whole notion in all the indie films, of course, as well, of the paranormal side of this. He's not just seeking, you know, any old trinket. These have some really significant value and potential theoretical power as well, which is amazing. And um, and that's where we're going to go today with uh, discussing a little bit about what the Ark of the Covenant, which Indy is seeking in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the titular Ark. But um, it, that's going to be a little bit of a deep cut, and that's going to be really, really exciting. But um, yeah, the paranormal aspect of it, and just to say something um, beforehand, is that so influential was this film, we wouldn't have... Uh, who wouldn't we have? Lara Croft of Tomb Raider, Nathan Drake of the Uncharted series, the Mummy series, many other video game inspired and also films have. I don't. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think we ever would have had Michael Douglas in Romancing the Stone. I just also think true. Yeah. So many other genres were sort of created um, by this. It was oh, it was a pebble that dropped in yeah. and created tsunamis, dude. Culturally, it really did. pop culturally, it really did. And um, we won't talk about the, uh, the, the 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 final indie film because we've talked about that beforehand. What? Which sort of yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter. What final? There's no kingdom of any what? crystal There's skulls. There's three. There's three. Sorry, you're what right. Yeah. No, that's a blemish. I really shouldn't have said anything. Yeah. I'm really embarrassed by that. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, let's just move on straight from there, shall we? The three yeah, yeah, films. Yeah, but today, yeah, of course, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg's all right. um, absolute opus. Back in my happy place. Yeah. You, you activated me for a moment. Sorry, there. man. Now, just now like your my dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all right. We, we've got the EpiPen handy. Now, my dude, this movie, if you don't mind, I, I just have to tell you a little bit about it. Yes, and and yes. hopefully it might even be, you know, uh, the listener might be interested in the journey because it had a bit of an undulating highway in terms of, of what it became. So it was released on the 12th of June, 1981, and was made for the sum total of $18 million, mm. which in the time was, was pretty cheap. And we, we might unpack that later. Later. It went on to make three hundred and eighty-nine million dollars at, that the, is at a the box lot office. Man. <laughs> it's a pretty good return That's on investment, cuz. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then further, furthermore, made a hundred and fifteen million on the VHS rental market alone. Mm. Subsequently. This wonderful, wonderful cinematic adventure was nominated for nine Academy Awards, my dude, mm. and it won five. Um, 
art direction, sound and visual editing, sound effects and visual effects. So I don't know how I didn't know that it won awards, man. And of course it should have in my mind, but I never even considered that that's an Oscar contender and glad to know. Well, it is interesting because, you know, it is considered by many credible sources far, far more noble than ourselves to be one of the best films ever made. It frequents top tens and it lives in top fives mm, um, mm. and is often residing on, the, on, on pole position. It, of course, did lead to, oh, well, I'll say it, it did lead to three more movies, two TV series. Mm. And a ton of games, ton of video games, yeah. which were meh, you know. And there were a couple of young indie films, weren't they, too? Sorry to cut you off there. Like, they attempted to do young Indiana Jones, where, you know, in uh, Last Crusade, where he's played by um, River Phoenix. River, And we the see great. where they, they, they give the, uh, the answer to how Indy and Harrison gets that scar on his chin, you know. It's just really wonderful. And yeah. the origin of the snake fear. That's right, yeah, yeah. And look, the the the, t- the two different TV series had had moments too. They were okay. Um, I really do feel like, however, that it was a comment on the gravitas and the presence that someone like a River Phoenix had, mm. even at that age, um, because the TV series they're watchable, but you just don't have someone like a Harrison Ford in the role, so you kind of don't care. There was even a Kenner range of action figures. Surprise, surprise. Um, but that didn't go so well. And, and an interesting little tidbit was that um, it was actually hard to find. I think there was about nine characters released and it was actually hard to find indies. <laughs> and so, you know, the kids the kids were pretty pissed off with like having a Belloc or- Yeah, playing Marcus you know, Brody. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I am the monarch of the sea. Um, yeah, so those, those didn't fly so well. Um, so this idea, my friend, it, it began as a cerebral, you know, football that that George Lucas obviously was kicking around yeah. in the early 1970s when he was sort of working on Star Wars. And as you beautifully mentioned, you know, the, here's your action serial sort of uh, up the 30s and 40s, your Buster Crab sort of like uh, Flash Gordon stuff, mm. which, you know, massive influence on on, on the Lucas. Um, so he started penning an idea, and it was a pretty, pretty well developed idea um, called "The Adventures of Indiana Smith." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that doesn't work, really, does it? <laughs> just, just doesn't, doesn't work, does yeah. it? No, it Indiana pop. Smith. Um, <laughs> the Indiana, of course, was he got the name from his dog. That was his doggy's mm. name, which I think is his just lovely. <laughs> um, Named after the dog. <laughs> after the dog. So. What so moving progressing things further down the track, he discussed the idea with a friend of his, a reasonably well-known writer and director of his own accord, a guy called Philip Kaufman, who um, we know from uh, writing and directing the outlaw Josie Wales. He wrote Henry and June. He also he also directed a I reckon an underrated Sean Connery film, Rising Sun. Uh, right, yeah. Yes, with Wesley Snipes, you know, with some yeah. of the great lines. Listen, Koha, Senpai, Apple Pie, <laughs> whatever <laughs> whatever the hell you want me to call you. Loved that movie. I really loved yeah. that movie. Thought it was a bit Dude, that was on the telly the other day as well, actually. And that, yeah, I gave it a little bit of a crack. It's fantastic. I <laughs> just really enjoyed that one too. Totally, man. Yeah, really enjoyed anyway, it. Digressing. 
Oh, and and also, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which mm. I, I particular I dug that back in the day. So Kaufman sort of read the treatment and just loved it. Um, but it was actually him, my friend, that chipped in the idea of using the Ark of the Covenant as a major plot device. So mm. um, it actually, you know, was not in this in the script or the idea until until Big Phil comes along. Now what happened was he had to bail because he had to go and work on Josie Wales and Lucas was working on another little thing. What was it? Uh, Star 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 Wars, I think. Star Wars, I think. Star Wars, yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah little, just a little film. Yeah. Um, so the whole project was put onto the back burner. So we fast forward a little bit of time and. Lucas is on holiday with with his mate Spielberg chilling in Hawaii, dude, as you do. And they're um and uh yeah, they're actually there waiting for the box office sort of reports and returns from the release of Star Wars. And obviously, you know, it's gangbusters. And at that point that Spielberg happens to express an idea to Lucas, and God, this would have been interesting, of I'd like to direct a Bond film. And mm. there's speculation as to whether he was actually in discussions, but I'd imagine if at that point he put up his hand to direct a Bond film, he probably could have. And so Lucas goes, well, <laughs> I've got an idea and, you know, here it is. And he, and he sold the idea as, look, here's a character that's potentially better than Bond. So Spielberg... Love the script, but here we go, my dude. He hated the Smith idea. Right. Um, and thus, Indiana Jones. Jones. Was born. So- Yeah, that's fantastic knowledge, we, man. I like it. Oh, dude. This is, it, it gets right. interesting too. So, we're going we're gonna to go into a little, bit of, um, a little bit of Lucasism here. So, I think this is an attribute of, of the George. So, he had already envisaged a trilogy for this, right? And Spielberg was like, I, I'm reluctant. I don't want to be locked into a trilogy. Like, I don't, it's not my thing. I want to, you know, do other stuff. And so, you know, they, they sort of come back to that discussion later on. But the whole idea was that Lucas apparently sold Spielberg on the idea of going, oh, I've already written the other two scripts. <laughs> does that sound like a familiar Sneaky. trick that he may yeah, have done before? Yeah, really <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah I've, got an, I've got an idea for the prequels. You know, they're all written. You know, can you imagine you're sitting on set and you're one of the producers, you know, you're walking past, you know, going, what are you writing there? Not, nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you mean? You're writing the next scene to the one we're on? <laughs> um, so Spielberg started to prepare for the, for the script and the production. And this is my dude where he hires a personal hero of this podcast. So he hired Lawrence Kasdan, dude, to prepare to write the screenplay. So the three minds, the three great minds hung out, dude, for three days to sketch out ideas. I mean, how much would you have loved to be a fly on the wall for just those three minds going, you know, what can we do here? Completely. And so basically they came they came out with the rough ideas, you know, the, the bomb tracks. And um, you know, Kasdan was sent away to write the write the screenplay. So if you actually look at IMDB and places like this, he's actually he's actually listed as the pole position, the the primary writer. And right. you know, I did this research, and obviously, you know, now now we know why. Now, um, so he had to sketch out the ideas and create something, and he wrote it. But Kasdan brought wit and humour 
to, to what he wrote. And, you know, the, the guys loved it so much, Spielberg and Lucas, that they, was, they just immediately uh, brought him on board and said, please, you know, write, write Empire. Mm. So that's you know that's how he got the the gig on Empire. Well, he writes scoundrels so well because he sort of boil it down. And you know when you were mentioning the uh, you know the potential of um, discussing India as a little bit of a Bond esque sort of dude, well, he he really ticks some of the boxes for yeah. that level, and especially when he's out of his kit, when he's back and working in the university. All the girls, all of his students just adore him. They think he's an absolute dish and they, you know, and that girl sort of in, in one of the scenes where she closes her eyes I and know. it's got I love you written on her eyebrow on her, on her eyelids, man. It's just great. And so he's got that debonair savoir faire and you can see the Bond-esque sort of thing coming through there. And just on top of that too, like all of the indie films, whenever there's a bit of travel, it cuts to this beautiful montage of the plane flying or the boat doing its thing and you've got the map and the line in which he's traversing. And so you've got that international intrigue, you know, that Bond usually has with the, the romantic locations and, you know, the high-end culture. It's just fantastic. So, yeah, nailed it there. I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, a little Bond-esque thing in there. It's really quite interesting, man. 100%, really man. And it's a classic, I suppose, the, the difference is that, you know, Bond is um, quite aware of, of, of this debonair, suave nature, whereas in those very scenes, Indy is at best unaware of it and, yeah. you know, or awkward with it, you know. Or flustered, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. right. And he's just yeah. trying to make his point. Um, and then, of course, the apples, all the apples, that you know, uh, the, the left on yeah. the desk, just lovely, and just to just to round out this this interesting, well, I think this interesting origin story, my dude, is that the studios, you're not going to believe this, they actually didn't want to touch it. Mm. You know, you've got you've got Spielberg, who's you know who's come off Jaws and Close Encounters. Mm. You've got Lucas, obviously, who's just dropped Star Wars, and the studios actually were contesting that it could be done for twenty million. And Lucas and Spielberg actually said, we're going to use old school filmmaking and a lot of filmmaking tricks. That's how we're going to come in under budget or, or at that budget. And I think that might contribute to the, to the, I suppose, the unique visual nature of this film. Um, and so, yeah, obviously Paramount backed it eventually and, uh, you know, the rest is history. I think the only, you know, the only other interesting sort of titbit that I found of note was that the role was not occupied by Harrison Ford originally. Spielberg was the one that wanted uh, Harrison Ford, but Lucas had concerns because he has, you know, because of his other mate, um, a guy called Martin Scorsese. I don't know if you've heard of him in, mm, in films. No. Assume he has a pizza shop. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, Lucas was concerned that he didn't want to have a Scorsese De Niro thing with, you know, a, a Lucas and a Harrison Ford thing going, which is mm. just a strange ideation. <laughs> and the role went to Tom Selleck. Yeah. So those yeah, who that. are listening along uh, and are under the age of 30, you could, you could Google Tom Selleck. Look, a personable chappy, um, a pretty, you know, uh, um, but probably you could suggest, G, that he might have brought a hyper-masculinity to the role that might yeah. have put it out of balance, dude. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know if there'd be a humbleness necessarily coming from Selleck, you know, because he's famously got the big, bold moustache and that gives him this super machismo where he's ready to be wearing <laughs> Hawaiian shirts and firing a revolver. Yes. You know, and, and you know, Indy, in a way, can 
could be that guy. He really, really could be. But there's a humbleness to Harrison's indie that that's why he's so endearing, you know, whereas Selleck would be a bit like, I am crushing this. I'm just going to smile my way through everything. It would have been probably pretty entertaining, but would it have created the other sequels? Would it have made indie into this icon? And then, of course, inspired every other bit of uh, intrepid tomb raiding pop culture that we can poke a... Um, I don't know, an Ark of the Covenant ad. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, obviously, um, Selleck auditioned for the role. He got the role, but um, had conflicting, you know, offers from a, from a TV series called Magnum PI, which obviously became an extremely lucrative. Um, mm. That show ran for nine years and obviously made, you know, Selleck at the time a, 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 more than a household name. But the interesting thing, I think the other thing that I will also wonder at is that um, Spielberg had some ideas to make uh, Indy a darker type character and to have, you know, to have some more some more vices and, and sort of what you alluded to really, really drill down on the idea of, okay, well, a Tomb Raider is really just a thief. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Lucas was quite staunch in saying, no, I, I want him to have a a virtuous side to him. So that's when Spielberg was like, well, if you want to do a guy that's virtuous, but still masculine, but, you know, can sort of show the troubled side. Because the troubled side of Indy's nature really is only explored momentarily later on in the film when he thinks Marion's dead and he, you know, gets in gets into the drink, mm. you know, and the, he, has this, he has the scene in the bar with Belloc where Belloc, does probably the only acceptable version of we're not so different you and I where he he's like it's you know it's only one small nudge to sort of push push you over to to my side and they have that great exchange where he's trying to say this is a telephone for talking to god and in indy's like you want to talk to god <laughs> let's go <laughs> so we see yeah, that right now yes that's right so we see <laughs> just an allusion to that to that darkness um so yeah, my friend, it was a yeah. undulating highway um, leading us to this wonderful, wonderful production. Yeah, man, well said. Fine, fine um, summary of um, all things Raiders here, man. That was some. There's some information there that I didn't actually know, which is really, really lovely. And that's what this is about, Isn't it? man. You know, we teach each other on the way, and in turn, hopefully, entertain some of our players at home. And <laughs> it's better than talking about the weather or COVID or work or stupid mm-hmm. stuff. Well, no, I shouldn't say stupid yeah. stuff, but we think it's. Oh, some of it's pretty stupid, yeah. I mean, it's just saturated, you know. This has been sitting there since 81. We've, we've had some time to think about this, you know. Really. It's I am counting the days until my children are old enough to to watch this movie, my dude. Like, it's just like it's Ooh. it's one of those fundamentals I need my kids to see and understand and ideally know all of the dialogue by the time they're, mm. you know, going to secondary school. Look, and it is, look, as you alluded to before, like, like I, I did see it fairly young, actually, all three of them fairly young, and it's not 100% advised because there are moments in that that are truly, from some degree of special effects too, and we can talk about what happens with the arc and why this happens later. Yeah, man. But um, that was there scary. is some melting face thing happening at the end, and it's so well done, like melting wax faces and they're screaming, and my goodness, that's terrible. Well, that's what I'm saying, dude. Um there are elements, if you look at the direction, there are elements of horror movie direction. Even at the start when 
poor old Fred Molina just, you know, after the throw me the whip, I'll give you the idol betrayal, mm. you know, ends up spiked. Yes. That's pretty gnarly. Oh, that's hideous. Like really good effect, that spike coming out of his mouth and his head, man. And you raise oh. it you raise a great point because it actually got a PG rating. That's what I was gonna say. And like, the theory yeah. was that um and you, my friend, have alluded to this before. The theory was that the reason well the only reason it got away with the PG rating is because the bad guys were Nazis. Yeah, that's right. When you've got very little sympathy for the uh, antagonist, you can, I mean, pop culturally, we can slay Nazis all day and we don't really get upset. I'm like, yeah, good. <laughs> you know, it's the same realm as zombies or anything like that. You can crush this enemy with impunity and the more vicious, the better. It's the BJ uh, Blaskovitz concept. It's just, that's that's fine. You can rip a dude's, you, uh, shoot a dude's uh, eyes, out, eyes out of their sockets. You know, that's fine as long as they're wearing an SS jacket. That's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> as long as their hat's a particular shape. You that's know, it's correct. Nuts, but if it's it? someone else, it's like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, look, do you reckon it's a good time to, to launch into some uh, some intrigue? Because I'm, I'm sort of loaded and ready. Please push the button mind. marked intrigue. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to push the intrigue button. We like to do this from time to time on the Manchildian Candidate. We do. I'd really like to discuss the arc itself oh, yeah. the, of which Indy wanted to raid. Now, I didn't know much about this, and I don't think many people, to be honest, knew really much about the Ark of the Covenant hadn't really no way. appeared in pop culture. And, you know, that's a way that really introduced a lot of us to this really profound concept. And so you'd just be thinking if you didn't do any research, that it's just a really great plot device. It's been fabricated by Spielberg and the writers to create this thing because it's so fanciful and ridiculous. It couldn't possibly have any degree of origin Perhaps, right? Or so you think. Or could it? But upon investigating the actual Ark of the Covenant, we realise that it is, in fact, still an unknown entity. It's quite, quite amazing. We still really don't know about it very much. And it's only in scriptures across the Bible and the Quran, and consequently further scripts for, from them, that we know a little bit about, well, quite a lot about the Ark and what its function was, who had it, who has it perhaps, and, um, you know, blah, oh, it gives me tingles. Anyway, so let me tell you what the Ark actually is. Please. Described as a gold-covered sarcophagus sort of device. It's, it's, it's a box wreathed in gold. And um, it's got some very particular measurements, right? And this is here. And um, we talked about cubits in the uh, Angkor Wat episode. Yes. Um, and cubits are really interesting. They're an old length. And what a cubit is, it's not often really 100% accurate because a cubit is from the end of your finger to your elbow. That is a cubit. And so that roughly makes about one and a half foot or something like that. So almost half a meter. Anyway, this is two and a half cubits in length, one and a half cubits in breadth, and one and a half cubits in height and gilded in gold. Wow. Um, and it has this amazing lid upon it with these two cherubim looking at one another and connecting and, and facing. And this is called the Mercy Seat. And I'll get to why that's a really interesting name in just a minute. But the the whole prophecy and idea of what the Ark, in fact, is and its functionality that we know of is that it was the vessel in which Moses um, received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, given to him, of course, by God. Now, that's an interesting thing that holds a lot of gravitas in the uh, Christian-slash-Catholic realm of yeah. uh, theology. Yeah. It's really, it's kind of, really bloody interesting. It's kind of a big it's, thing. It's like yeah. your all your morals right there, yes. right? Here's your rule book. So, 
Yeah, but what people don't particularly understand is that there are, in fact, two other objects inside the Ark. Ah. And this is great because one of these objects is called Aaron's Rod. Now, Aaron's Rod is a reference to any staff that was wielded or held or owned by Moses' brother Aaron. And this is, in fact, the staff that is thought to have been used by Moses himself to part the Red Sea when he and the Israelites were in the 40-year desert exodus. And the other thing that the ark contained is a pot of manna. Manna being manna from heaven. Yes. A substance in which um, is believed that God gave to the Israelites to feed them in their exodus for those 40 years. And there's a lot of description about manna because we use manna now as in, well, you drink a manna potion to get your magic back in a game, right? And so, what full manna again and I can use my magic. Correct. And there's also some um, very deeply important ideas of, of mana in the Polynesian cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And th- they think that there's um, there's been enough description of what mana actually is. And they think it's, it's, it's actually a substance, man. And it's um, there's a substance called delium, which is super weird. And it forms as a gum, a water-based gum or a resin, kind of like the size of coriander seeds. And it's also known as false myrrh, because myrrh is um, a scent that we use. And it was a gift from the wise men to Jesus is one of the, uh, the uh, flavors of the day. And this is called false myrrh because it looks kind of similar and has an interesting smell as well. But apparently it doesn't go bad. It can look a little bit like frost, apparently, like frost on grass in the morning, which is a really quite romantic, wow. nice little notion. That's cool. And when you eat it, right, you don't poop. It creates no waste. So there's this really, really... Handy. Handy for astronauts. Isn't it? Yeah. I don't know why they... They're closer to God. You think they'd have a heap more of that yeah. stuff up there. Yeah, you think? Nah, they're still working on it, man. Too much fiber. What are you doing? <laughs> you goddamn need some more potassium in your diet, please. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's absolutely, um, absolutely amazing what what this ark is. And wow. so, there are absolute direct um, instructions on how to build it and all this sort of such. But interestingly, the ark. Um, sort of had this really interesting little lifespan because they deemed it to be incredibly powerful. It was given to the Israelites, of course, under the guise of Moses, etc. And then a group of dudes um, decided they'd pinch it, known as the Philistines. The Philistines came and they pinched the ark from the Israelites. And then when they took it back to their homeland, apparently all of the people in their city started getting rashes, tumors, and started falling incredibly ill. And this is indicative of something that's actually emitting some form of radiation. I was about to say. Which is, yeah, which is really, really interesting. And, you know, Moses claims to have talked to God through this with kind of like a hum and it's really interesting, which could very well be a, (laughs) you know, I'll talk about it being a radio in a minute. But um, they then consequently gave it back. They went, no, this is starting to kill us. So they gave it back and they put it back in the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. And then in uh, 587 BC, a little fella known as Nebuchadnezzar II of the Babylonians absolutely destroyed Jerusalem and the Temple of Solomon and stole the Ark and took it away. And that is almost the last that it was ever heard of. And currently, in as about 2011, the president or the scientific advisor to Ethiopia claims that it's in got the it. Temple in Aksum in Ethiopia and they were going to reveal it, right? And they were going to release it to the world and say, we've actually got the Ark. And then something happened, and they went, uh, 
no, 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 not yet. No, we won't. No, no, we don't have anything. What are you talking about? What arc? And all of a sudden, like it's then gone back into the shroud of mystery. We don't have an arc. What do you mean? No, we meant we've got a DVD. 25th anniversary copy of Red is the Lost <laughs> yeah. Ark. What, Red what's is the your Lost problem? Ark, exactly. That's right. I think it's worth noting here, my dude, um, that Graham Hancock, another mm. uh, grandfather, forefather of this program, began his career writing about uh, you know antiquities based around an experience that he had when in Ethiopia doing some research for for a book that he was working on at the time and yeah encountered you know a reasonably credible source that he was talking about through through the antiquities people over there who was just adamant oh yeah we've got it 100% we have mm. it it's mm. it's just in there of course he wasn't allowed to go near it <laughs> yes. and there's some really interesting concepts my dude depending on who and where you read, talking about suggesting some of the uh, great militaries in history actually having possession of, of this Ark. So, yes. you know, Hannibal, yes. there's talk of Hannibal having it. So, some really interesting ideas of mm. sort of these armies, these unbeatable armies or empires possibly having this thing that is written down in histories as saying that any any army who who possesses this cannot be beaten in battle. Yes. Yes. And what's really interesting, what, what they add to, and they, they really allude to this, they don't, don't allude to it, they show you directly at the end when they open the arc at the very mm. end. And what it does is it shoots out lightning, incredible lightning, and it destroys all of the Nazis in the room who are looking at it. And that's when Indy's tied up with Marion. Marion, keep your eyes shut. And they do, and they it's an amazing scene. And this is where it gets incredibly interesting for me, and this involves the mercy seat, which is the lid, which I mentioned earlier. There's a thing, there's a couple of things that I'm going to mention that tie really nicely into this Ark of the Covenant idea. And one of them is the uh, an ancient uh, artifact that they found that they call the Baghdad Battery, yeah. which um, is from 150 BC or so. And it's a ceramic pot found in uh, modern-day Iraq, which was Persia at the time. Uh, and it's a copper pot, or a ceramic pot, sorry, with a copper tube. And it's also got a little bit of gold in there and an iron rod. And what this was, they found that it is really capable of holding an electrical charge, but also discharging it. And it, there's much speculation about how they actually got the electrical charge in there, but the temple in which they found it in, um, in Persia, was thought to be a lightning temple where there's a spire and these batteries are hooked up. So when the um, lightning strikes the spire, it in fact puts it inside this battery and holds a charge. Now, we didn't really work this stuff out as human beings until 1745 when they formed these two men, which is really interesting. I'm going to really probably butcher their names and I'll give it a red hot Do it. Eval George von Kleist and Peter van Muschenbroek. These two men created this thing independently in the same year, not very far away from each other in Austria and Germany, um, respectively. It's called the Leyden Jar. And this is a very precise thing, and it has similar properties to the Baghdad battery, which they learned can hold static. They were able to hold a charge. So if you use a lot of these ideas about other technologies that we do definitely know about, the Ark is coming across a hell of a lot like a Leyden Jar or a Baghdad battery, in which the way that built and the formula in which it's created can in fact potentially hold an electrical charge. Yes. So this sort of comes under the idea and this beautiful blanket of actually opening the lid, shooting out electricity because they didn't know not to open it, you idiots, and consequently 
you know, scorched everyone in the damn room. Yeah. And it's a terrifying device, you know. But the the interesting thing with the uh, the lid's name being the mercy seat is also what they call the electric chair. So oh, it's got this, geez. you know, these little similarities and these connotations Ooh. here. So the Ark, in fact does seem to have some credible idea. And we've talked about this before with Arthur C. Clarke's quote about if you, you know, um, if you can't understand the science behind it, it's indistinguishable from magic, basically. So then, of course, magic doesn't exist. The only thing you know in this era is, well, God's done it, obviously. And it's really, really quite fascinating how this operates, man. So it could very well be that this was a battery of some form or... You know, it's proposed that Moses talked to God through a so superconductor. Unrealistic yeah. to see that's exactly or to say hello, God. He's like, hello, I'm here. Do this for me. He's like, oh God, all right, I'll do my best. You know, yes. it's it's just try to eat more vegetables so, and stop masturbating. <laughs> Damn it! Brush your teeth. Damn it! Brush them better. And so if that begs the question, right? And as you say, like any army that possesses the Ark has un beatable power and that sort of it comes under the guise as like it could be a placebic effect because you think that it has all this power right it's like oh they've got the ark we're gonna die we're down but in fact yeah but in fact it could have in fact been a super psychological war in a way like dude Oh, it's just absolutely fascinating. And I really do love the fact that these two men, independent of each other, invented or came up with the same idea of this battery in the same year. Yeah. It's just it's just amazing. And if they hadn't known a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant or the Baghdad battery, I'd be very surprised. You need like a little nudge sometimes, don't you? And Or an influence, an inspiration to come up with great things. Brother, that was amazing. Um, thank you. It 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 um sort of follows on with that concept of what we're talking about too. Of like, hey, you know, there's reasonably substantial evidence to even just consider the fact that we may be a lot older than we are. So, you know, who knows? There's 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 historical writings that are alluding to connecting this object with older societies like Atlantis and all this sort of stuff. So, mm. you know. This is what we do on this show. It's just super fun to imagine that this is the remnant technology of, you know, uh, uh, a civilization that got wiped out by massive impacts, you know, again, on that sort of timeline. Yeah. Yeah. It is also fascinating, my dude, to ask, well, where exactly is it? If it makes someone, I guess, invincible is the word to use, (laughs) who's got it, where is it, and why? Well, maybe that's why it's locked away in that way, because that's too much power for any one person to have, right? You've got to keep it simple. Uh, Hancock refers to the specific order of priests who are, you know, watching over it and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, And by the way, it's very well represented in the movie. So you can mm. tell that, once again, these guys, they've done their research. Uh, even myself trying to do a bit of research and look at kind of what it was. Yeah, if you look, two cherubim are in the movie on the picture. It's just it's just like, wow. That, that prop arc is 100% accurate according to description. Yes. That's what it looked yes. like in, in description, you know. It's, it's wonderful, isn't it? And it's so well done in the movie because an, an amassed amount of gold like that would have that weight. And in the movie, it's taken, mm. you know, it's a hard thing to move. But what I find really interesting as, as a plot device is the intentionality that's assigned to the arc. So there's an intelligence mm. to it. And that ties in with the whole idea of, look, does Indy, you know, become the agent of righteousness? Is, is there a certain power or paranormal strength 
given to him because if you look in some of those scenes, you know, the dude's pushing over giant, massive statues that just, you know, like they're not they're not mm. moving by any sort of mortal human. He's clearly no good really in combat and that sort of stuff, but you know, always seems to prevail. It's an it's an interesting idea. And we first see the suggestion of perhaps an intellect or an intelligent design to the Ark is when it's placed in that container and it burns away the specifically the swastika. That's right. I was going to say that. And it makes that horrible noise and the rats are finding boom, it intolerable. Boom, it's like, boom, oh, that's boom. dope. Yeah. That's that's when it that's when you realize the arc is pretty pretty scary. And just to mention something what you said there is he being an agent for potential righteousness or or goodness or any sort of moral alignment. Anyone, anyone facing themselves off against the Nazis, my bro. Really, really just is when you, when this is perceived as pure pure evil, human beings at their evilist, then anyone is an agent for righteousness if you're combating the Nazis. So, my dude, this might be a good time to segue into another uh, major element of this film, and that would be, as we alluded to, the presence of the Nazis full stop. Mm. So, it's an important plot device. As we said, you know, it's okay. You can kill these guys and apparently not get yourself an M rating. You can melt their heads. You can explode them. But, uh, you know, the, the righteousness of destroying these fellas cannot be questioned. And apologies for how I'm going to uh, pronounce this. Now, I will preface this whole idea of saying that G-Man and I will be exploring Hitler's beliefs and the occult division and the paranormal. But we're just going to keep it mainly relevant to this movie today. Otherwise, as we said, G-Fresh, we'd be here for about six hours, yeah? Oh, the floodgates are <laughs> opened, dude. But this is a very, very nice entry point because it's um, cause the arc is, uh, I don't know, something we understand quite a bit about. Absolutely. Now. Absolutely. Anyway, you know, yeah. So, where do you begin with these guys? You begin with the the Abanan or the Abanan Society or the Abanane Society, which is basically a German society, which was founded by, ideally founded by three guys, based on the concepts of Adolf Hitler and his beliefs, a lot of which was put out in, in the book Mein Kampf, which we'll come to in a minute. So those three guys, and it's important, it's an important combination here, a marketing PR propaganda specialist, Johan von Leer, a Dutch prehistorian, Hermann Wirth, and of course, a fairly malevolent uh, figure in history, that being of Heinrich Himmler. Mm. So, these dudes came together to form an association, an organisation, with a mandate that was part history, part science, and equal parts pseudo-history, pseudo-science, and propaganda. Now, not to go too deeply into the ideas of what Hitler believed, so if I was to describe it sort of briefly, in essence, Hitler believed that there were three types of races or cultures. One was the founders of culture. So, dude, much like those weird, bald, jacked-on-steroids, you know, progenitors in Ridley Scott's movies bearers of culture and the destroyers of culture. And at one end, obviously, you had the Hitler had the belief that the Aryans were, in fact, the founders of culture. And my dude, he was pretty liberal in what he sort of 
put in that category. Like, <laughs> he's kind of assigning art, literature, science, basically everything we know to the to the Aryans. And unfortunately, he depicted the Jewish race as the destroyers of culture. So, you had these guys attempting, in essence, to explain the lack of any archaeological or historical evidence for ancient advanced Nordic civilizations. And one of the popular popular methods that Hermann Wirth used to do this was to claim that the Aryans had evolved in an Arctic homeland two million years ago before establishing their advanced society on a land in the North Atlantic, which had sink since sunken into the sea. So obviously tying tying it into the Atlantis ideas. So yeah. this is what you had as a common theme with these guys. Searching through history and using a fair bit of, in my opinion, artistic license to to give foundation and note to the ideas of Hitler. You had, for example, there are some historians who talk about, and when I say that some of these ideas, in my opinion, are, are a long bow, I'm just being diplomatic. I think some of them are bat guana crazy. So, at one point, you had Hitler even tying in some of the ideations of Tibetan Buddhism, and he's uh, actually saying that the Gautama Buddha himself was of actual Aryan origin. So, you know, dude, that's where we actually see, unfortunately, one of the most popular symbols for good luck in ancient history being subjugated um, and and, and mm. sort of, you know, reappropriated into the swastika symbol. That's an incredible thing that you just bring up because I, I don't know if a lot of people actually know that. Like there are there are temples and there are manuscripts and there are documents that you can totally. see now. They're everywhere. You look at them, you go, oh, God, that's a swastika. But, oh, my God. That's such a rude thing. It's the most incredible reappropriation from... It's the absolute opposite, really, isn't it? 100%. So, they tilt it on the side just to give it their own little swagger as well. It's horrible. The closest mm. thing in history and philosophical thought and religion would be, you know, the Satanists grabbing the crucifix and turning it upside down. It's, it's you know, it's on par with that. And mm. so... That's right. Yeah, it's truly, truly... A, a, yes. a, a, tr- a rebranding. So you had these, you had these guys, dude, and they had money, and they travelled all around the world, looking, you know, looking at archaeology, looking at sites, trying to basically perpetuate and substantiate this narrative that these Aryans essentially created everything. So I mean, they had expeditions through mm. throughout Africa. You know, that's a pretty ambitious gambit trying to say that the Aryans created, you know, this these civilizations and these thoughts, you know, Egypt, all over the world. But let's contextualize it to this wonderful film, my friend, in that in between 1938 Mm -hmm. and 1939, these guys were in Tibet. So, like I said... trying to affiliate or tie the ideas of saying that Buddhism is based on these Aryan concepts. So, April, you know, and this is documented history from April 1938 to August 1939, um, they were led by a German zoologist and SS officer, a guy called Ernst Schaefer. Now, it's my posit that this is actually the basis for the for the character of Major Arnold Tott, 
who's in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, shoot them, shoot them both, mm. you know, Mr. Mr. Bernie Hand. Um, shoot them both. It's, it's, it's very difficult <laughs> yeah. um, not, to, not to sort of look at this connection um, because Tot himself in the movie is an interesting character because we can see that, we can see that um, although he's a military guy, he's not necessarily a warrior or a warring type. He's got his thugs with him doing the shooting and the fighting and all that sort of stuff. And it's highlighting that scene too when he comes into the when Marion's captured and he whips out what looks like nunchucks. That's right. <laughs> and everyone goes and gasps and he turns it into a coat hanger and <laughs> hangs his coat. Oh, it's great. That's, Sorry to cut you off. I just no, no, you cannot you <laughs> cannot cut people off on 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 your own podcast, my friend. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just it's just a wonderful um, idea. So, you know that that is to just to gently put our toe in the water and say that there was an occult or a, or a paranormal division, um, and we're going to unpack that in many mm. many episodes to come. Um, yeah. Needless to say that there was a solid belief in the existence of the Ark, a solid belief in the history around it, and Hitler was absolutely again. Bat guana crazy obsessed with finding this object because he believed that it was going to make him invincible. Indeed, man. Hit, like what we understand, it, Hitler was the most. He was one of the most superstitious dudes. He had some very strange stuff going on, you oh, know, yeah. in his inner sanctum, like really, really baffling. And when you get absolute power, we know it corrupts absolutely. Blah 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 blah. Well, when you've got this amount of power, we're talking, you know, Hitler take over the world power. The the fact that he committed so much time and thought and resources to this whole paranormal division is really quite fascinating because why would you do that unless there was some grain of truth if you didn't think you were actually going to succeed? That's, you know, this is where it gets amazing. And just before we go on that, because I know you've got something to say, like there's a, a huge amount of um, quatrains in Nostradamus's prophecies yes. where there's a, there's a fella that, Nostradamus writes about called Haita. Hitler assumed this was him. And so all these quatrains are saying, and you'll march over the river on the fourth day and you'll burn the villages. He's like, shit, okay, I've only got four days to do that. We better burn those villages, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he yeah. literally thought it was about him, these devastating prophecies about someone taking over the world. Anyway, there's just a little tidbit of his his. Oh, profound, you know, freakish superstition. We've heard, you know, we've heard about this happening in history before. You know, um, uh, the Spanish, the Spanish warlord and leader Cortez. You know, Cortez. when uh, going in and and uh, you know believing believing that that his arrival coincided with with localized philosophy and mythology and religion. It's it's a uh, Look, you know, it's not a bad move if you could try to pull it off because you sort of uh, pump your own tyres up a fair bit, don't you? You, mm. you know, like oh, yeah. I'm, I'm actually a god, and Nostradamus mentioned that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting idea, and it's a way in the movie that we can allude to the malevolence and characters like this, but we don't have to sort of name them. So Arnold Tott represents so much in this movie in terms of he is as good as Himmler walking into the room. You know what I mean? He looks like it's ca it's cast in the same way, isn't it's it? It's not a coincidence. That, yeah, it's not, not even, a not even. And so you've got you've got some fascinating ideas in here saying, and probably not not for this episode today, but you had as a consequence of that, you had some of the early iterations of, you know, what became things like the CIA getting on board and saying, well, 
bloody hell, we can't have him find it. So we've got to, you know, we've actually got to make sure that if this bloody does exist, he can't get it. So there's, you know, th- schools of thought that are suggesting that Jones is actually a government operative. He's actually, Ooh. yes, my dude, he's actually a very early iteration of the CIA because it's quite well known that these guys, when they travelled ab- abroad in the world of espionage and counter-espionage, would often use as covers that they were archaeologists or historical yeah. um, lecturers or students of prehistory. So... There's dude, layers here, wild. my dude. I like that, man. Because, <laughs> like, what we know is, like, the uh, precursor to the CIA was the OSS, which was the, um, oh, I can't even remember, the, the Operational, oh, the Office of Strategic Services, what that was, early CIA. Wow. That's correct, my dude. So, yeah. there's a there's an idea that, that Jones is an OSS agent. And, you know, again, we could pull at that string because that's what we do. We pull strings here. But it's... Uh, potentially explored in the scene very early in the movie once he returns from his <laughs> tomb robbing he is met with two OSS agents you know they're, mm. they're introduced as government you know agents and they're kind of there's a bit of a nefarious vibe about them they're, they're in their suits and it's just interesting because they want to ask him about the Ark of the Covenant and it's it's portrayed in the movie that Indy wasn't expecting their arrival but of course he just happens to have this book sitting there that's yeah. one of the best weighty tomes uh, about the Ark of the Covenant. You know, I even um, thought of those agents. He, uh, they allude to, they allude to. Oh, you know, tell us more about it. He just happens to flip. He flips open the book, dude. I told you I went deep. He flips open the book. He doesn't even really search much. He goes, Vroop, there's a picture of the Ark, Boof, right mm, there, mm. with the beautiful music and and the background and everything. So there's some allusion to the fact that he might know these guys or be known to them or know the know the procedure. I mean it's again it's it's a fun thread to tug at, but they are conceivably OSS agents. They're government agents mm. that are mm. worried <laughs> about the the Abenani society getting the Ark of the Covenant. So who else are they? Yeah, that's very interesting. And even even um, at the very end, when the ark has been captured and claimed, and you know it's being put into a facility uh, looked after by top men. Who? Top men. Top men. And we don't know who that is, you know. Yeah. And then that great scene where it's being put in the uh, in in the in the warehouse, and it's endless, endless rows of other artifacts with nondescript boxing. And it's that's, that alludes to something else too, doesn't it? Like, whoa, they've probably got a lot in that place that we really want to know about. Man. That's right. And again, this gives rise to, you know, a lovely water cooler discussion that's had about Raiders of the Lost Ark in that in Indy is actually an insignificant plot device. So his character actually does not impact the overall outcome of what goes on much at all, which is, eh, it's, it's not, you know, I often counter that by saying the whole point of this movie, let's remember, it's a hero's journey movie. Mm. So it's actually more about him and his journey from a questionable, nefarious you know, Lara Crofty Tomb Raider to a dude that's a virtuous agent of God. So that's the point. That's the journey that is important. Because what else can they do with it? They know where history is at. They can't say in this movie, it's going to be too silly to say, well, the you know, the, the Stars and Stripes now owns the 
Ark of the Covenant. So it's an interesting idea. Obviously, you know, the warehouse, you know, the hangar, there's allusions to that mm. with the world of conspiracy theories. But it is an interesting idea to sort of say that, okay, for example, the dude burns his hand. He only has half of the half of the amulet. So there's that wonderful scene with Sala where they're digging in the wrong place. So Indy jumps in, yeah, and gets the Staff of Ra, by the way, which is often referred to under the different name that you talked about. Aaron, the Staff of Aaron. Rod. Is often referred to in Egyptian mythology as the Staff of Ra. But anyway, and so, you know, by him actually getting in there and trying to work out where the bloody thing is, the Nazis find out, bust him and go, oh, thanks for doing our work for us. Yeah. So there's all these... There's, uh, there's all these arguments to say that he just creates this baseline that really doesn't affect the overall outcome. However, I would argue that it's a hero's journey and yeah. that's the important thing. So, it's a fascinating thing to go back and watch my cars. You, yeah. you watch the use of yeah. lighting, which incidentally, I don't think it's a coincidence. That's what all the Academy Awards were for. Lighting, mm. sound, editing, yeah. right? Yeah. Technique. He, yeah. He's this shadowy, questionable dude at, at, the, at the start. He almost becomes under influence, either known or not, by the Ark of the Covenant. Is that indicated by the fact that he happens to have the book of the Ark of the Covenant there? Yeah, that's right. Page happens to fall open. That he, you know, like I said, he's got these crazy skill sets throughout the movie. He's not a great fighter, yet he beats the crap out of people or gets them cut up by propellers. You know, is the is the Ark or the act of being the agent of God? you know, making fortune favour him, I ask well, you. Well, he found it. It it, it allowed um, him to find it, you know. No matter how hard the Nazis, with all of their money and muscle and swagger, and they were just getting it wrong. And they, in, in my mind, they may not have found it at all had Indy not gone and done it himself. That's the whole point. And, you know, yeah, exactly. That's, That's a really interesting point, man. Yeah. That's where people argue that he, in fact, sucks <laughs> because he showed <laughs> yeah. him where it was. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean- his intention in finding it wasn't to use it or wield it, and that's the difference. You know, the Nazis were going to. They were going to use it as a weapon of war or a device in which to conquer. And uh, Indy didn't want that. And so I suppose that's the virtue of the righteousness where how oh, he's going to do it for the right reason. So, well, here I am. Come and find me, you know. Well, if you it's think about it, I ask you this question, my little uh, buddy. Do you think that the character that he is at the start of the movie – who is desecrating sacred sites, my dude, do you think that that lightning of God would have avoided him? You know, he tr- he becomes such a virtuous individual. I posit to yeah. you that the Indy at the start of the movie would have got- Would have been zapped. Would have got 1.21 <laughs> gigawatts just like everyone else does. Yeah. And it had no difference whether he was opening his eyes or not. You no. Know? I don't think that was anything about it. Yeah, that's right really point. interesting, man. Oh, yeah. Nah, this has sent me in a bit of a tailspin. You've actually thrown a bit of a, a curveball at me that I wasn't expecting, man. And um, yeah, I've got a lot to think about, dude. Like just him being the, I don't know, there's an angelic 
sort of commodity to him in a way, you know, of that righteousness. He's represented, he's represented yeah. as being near the light or near the sun, even in the even in the movie posters. Yeah. Um, and even some, you know, one of my favourite scenes where they're doing the dig and they're up on that elevated soil and completely silhouetted against the sun, yeah. you know, yeah. bends over and grabs the hat. Such an awesome shot. Even when he's sort of jumping on planes or leaving sites in various scenes, dude, he's off, heading off towards the sun you know it's it's yeah that's a bit of a cowboy sort of cliche though isn't it and that's sort of you know that's that's an easy plot you know that's an easy mechanism though off into the sunset but i guess it is it's a trope it's a trope that's not uncommon but i guess i'm just i mean you actually sent me on this tangent of thought before when you were saying it's it's by definition that last scene you know where where the arc is clearly crossing the streams and just blasting everyone Hmm. I mean, dude, that's by proxy. That's God, is it not? Absolutely. So yeah. that is God striking these dudes down. You know, so that's what I posit to you. Only an instrument of God is going to be invulnerable to that. Mm. Yeah, that's that oh God. That's absolutely fascinating, man. I mean, you know, in in future episodes when we decide to have a look at the the other ones, uh, the other two, the other two, yeah. yeah, yeah, and in particular, probably the last crusade about the Holy Grail. We won't talk much about that today, but um, you know, the the philosophy and the prophecy behind this is that that was an actual real thing as well, and you know, an object of the Lord, and still worthy of the Nazis' um, interest, which is. Um, you know, it's absolutely crazy. So I'd like to draw some comparisons and see some similarities between there. With this in mind, going in, observing Indy as an agent of God, perhaps, and seeing if there we can draw similarities between those two oh, films. Dude, I, I don't think it's too hard. Like even no. even if it's just you know, hero's journey on steroids. You think about it, man. It this this movie sets up a recurring theme. He's able to exist and operate within a you know a demonic thuggy cult. You know, and they are they are literally you know worshiping lower level demonic entities. You know, mm, um, mm. and and he's able to go in there and you know and 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 survive and move through that. You yeah. know, he's the dude. I mean, spoilers, everyone, if you haven't seen these, but. He finds the goddamn cup of Christ. Exactly. <laughs> cup of the carpenter. But, you know, to digress even further back to when you were talking about Hitler's interest and the SS's interest in Tibet, this is fascinating for me, not only just for symbology, but, you know, theologically, um, there's huge chapters of uh, Jesus's life that are, you know, not hugely known, really important, defining times, you know, and the theory, of course, is that he was doing the same damn thing in the same place, um, learning arts of mindfulness and, you know, all this other internal brilliance. And so the thematic there thing of uh, going to Tibet for this exact purpose, wow, it's fascinating that Hitler's followed you know the similar sort of pattern here absolutely and i mean you you skillfully allude to a historical character that's written in many books in buddhism an individual by the name of isa and they literally talk about this guy this guy who speaks aramaic and travels from you know travels over the hills from that part of town and he, you know he's a wise man and a seer and a, and what they refer to as a bodhisattva an enlightened mm-hmm. teacher and he comes like and- patrick swayze in point break right Bodhisattva. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, not yeah. no one's that good. No, you're right. Sorry. No, no one competes with Swayze. Oh, dude. You know, he told us that 
pain don't hurt. It's probably the greatest line in Roadhouse. <laughs> oh, what a legend. You know, it does, though. It, it kind of does. Yeah. And look, we're even willing to look far past the weirdly pedophilic nature of the whole Dirty Dancing movie. Or are we? Mm. No, I can't. Yeah, I no. don't know. Could Dirty Dancing be made now? Yeah, maybe by Weinstein. If I took my kids to a camp like that and this weird, weird guy's trying to, yeah, it's like, that's not rock salt, dude. Ba-boom. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Booyah shaka. <laughs> Cha-ching. Yep. But, um, yeah, dance now, little man. But, uh, yeah, look, we digress. But, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating idea to have a look at this and sort of go, well, regardless of what we believe today, there were some serious campaigners in history who thought that these ideas had merit. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you, I don't know, if you're a betting man, and, and I know that you're not, but do you go with that theory of Ethiopia? And I know that's, here I go asking and answering a question. But for me, it gives me solace to think of maybe these rad, virtuous dudes are protecting it in Ethiopia. God, I hope yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's, uh, it's allegedly in a place, uh, it's called the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion. It's... It, what a fantastic name. And that's got all the symbology that you could wish for, for a sanctuary of an artifact of the Lord. Yes. And allegedly another sort of tiny historical tidbit is that the Queen of Sheba, of course, of, you know, modern day Ethiopia, she was the last one, in fact, to have it. And wow. And her power. And so that, that sticks nicely with modern day Axum in Ethiopia itself. And yeah, man, there has to be an explanation for this and for it to constantly appear. Um, and people saying, yes, this happened. Yes, we've got it. Blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden to renege that is really rather interesting. Why say anything in the first place? You know, yeah. if there's not some merit to it, you're just trying to get in, you know, are you trying to get press? Are you trying to get intrigued? Are you trying to put that on the tourism pamphlet for Axum? You know, maybe, hey, we've got the ark. You can't see it, but it's, you'll, you'll know it's here. It's fine. Yeah. But it, yeah. So, yeah, man, I, I, I've got a feeling that um, in my layman and unprofessional opinion, yeah, it all points to Ethiopia um, in some way or another. So, you know, I, I'm sort of surprised that there hasn't been a greater international calling, perhaps, to say, seriously, we're really intrigued. It's written everywhere for a couple of thousand years. Can we have a look at it? Just to look at it. I won't touch it. I won't open it. Just, just let us know, you know. But once again, if we talk about, you know, when history has been written by the victors, you can't all of a sudden redo 2,000 years worth of history if it turns out to be real. Because it just ruins everything, man, you know, to throw everything into chaos. So that's where we get confused. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? But the one thing that really appeals to me, well, you know, I find this object fascinating is the concept that it corrupts the, vir the those that are not virtuous. So like the one ring. I love the idea. Yes, I love the idea that, like you said, it's it pops up as a special guest in, you know, the TV series of life. It pops up in various spaces and different episodes and different series, but mostly the recurring theme is that it corrupts those that try to hold it, and that sort of asserts with me the idea of because I was talking to a friend about it the other day, and he's like, well, why wouldn't you just go and grab it and, you know, become the most unbeatable army? And I'm saying, well, history says that people did that, and then it wrecked them. And I don't yeah. mean, sorry, the body part. I mean that it destroyed them. Probably their rectum too. 
Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Oh, like geez. it's that it's that fantastic. <laughs> it's that fantastic. I guess that would be an irony in that it's the most powerful thing in the world. But I'm sorry, dude. If your intent is nefarious, it's just gonna melt you. Yeah, exactly. And like the parallel there, honestly, uh, I just said, I, th- I think it's really interesting in a way, like the one ring uh, will corrupt those. And even if you have this um, in your possession with good intentions, it has an agenda of its own. It does have that sort of, uh, it's it's personality, I suppose. Would you give it that perhaps, or at least some awareness of its functionality and can get it to places through you. It wants to be there. So you're like, all of a sudden you want to go there for no damn reason, which you never did before. So it really does have that quality. And that's where the nice little hopeful side of uh, like the Lord of the Rings in and the destroying of the ring comes in into comparison is that the only creatures capable of holding the ring without being totally destroyed are the simplest, gentlest little creatures. And this is why the hobbits are the only ones who can actually wield this thing without succumbing to its overarching evil power of control wow. and the ark of the covenant's got something to do with similar sort of idea right if you if you're posing it like that it cannot be in possession of anybody it's too much it just really is everyone's tried to steal it and it backfires on them you know like the philistines my god that's you know that sounds like a damn horrible thing everyone in the city all of a sudden coming down with boils and tumors Man, something was off about that, you know? Yeah, to, so, to, mm. to literally just go, no, no, sorry about that, our bad. Yep, and they gave it back. You the can most have a powerful back. object that we don't <laughs> want it, you know? So, you know, that's interesting. Well, just to digress and to go back with a super geeky point, and that's what we do on this show, I would posit that we can't forget one of my biggest gripes with Lord of the Rings of the few Let's not forget Tom Bombadil, you know. Ah, the films forgot him well. That's yeah. the problem with me. Like, I, I agree with you about the low-tier level of Hobbit sociology and psychology, but, dude, I just was dirty on the fact that there's nothing about the Everman. The one mm. dude that's obviously has power who just holds that ring in his palm and goes, yeah, it's not for me. He just looks at it. Oh, yeah, come on. But dude. he's not of this earth. He's something else completely. Like he's before the Maya. He's a, he's one of the most intriguing quirks of Lord of the Rings. It, it, like completely because he appears out of nowhere and he's never mentioned again. It's a bit yeah, of a bummer. They have the most Yeah, but that that in fact for me, it's like you know in a really great song there's like a 12 minute uh, 12 second solo and it only happens once and you wish it happened over and over again. Oh, yeah. Well, it can't happen because it wouldn't be as special. Tom Bombadil is that cracking guitar solo, man. He needs to only be in that much. That makes him that much more special, you know. Listen, my thing yeah. is this. When when this podcast just goes global, inevitably, as it will, and it knocks Rogan off the off the chair, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm cool with that. And we you can make have a, him as a guest. <laughs> we make a ton of money. I'm just going to get Jackson and I'm just going to say, buddy, I'm just going to hire you. I want you to do deleted scenes, special features, whatever it is. I want you to do Bombadil and Barrow Whites, and I can die yeah. a happy man. Yeah. Well, who would you cast as Tom Bombadil then, I wonder? Gary Oldman. Oh, would you? Yeah. Do you think Tom... Yeah, I'd have to read the description of how Tom Bombadil looks again, I think. Because he's a jolly, red-faced, happy man, you know? he's. A, I think he's a little bit robust. I just came out with that, you know? I like it. It's just yeah, off. I'd have to have a red-hot think. Like, tune in next week and we'll tell you who we yeah. think Tom Bombadil is. It's not going to be Gary Busey. I know that. 
Look, you know, maybe Jake Busey if he's lucky, but <laughs> no, it couldn't possibly oh be God. Busey, man. I'll see you in oh. Oldman and I'll raise you a Busey. Well, my brother, <laughs> it sounds like we might have uh, navigated our way tangentially towards the end of this episode. So yeah. um, as much as we did with um, the Angkor Wat episode, we closed by reflecting on the artistic integrity of the production. And look, with Stargate, we kind of went, it's actually not that great a movie. So Stargate was just, I think, probably one of the most original and best ideas, not executed completely fantastically. Where do you rate Raiders? We alluded to it at the start of this episode, but I'm going to ask you to give it a score out of five. Dude, it's five. It's easy. Like, it really, really is. So the impact that it had on me as a child, on the impact of pop culture in itself, pretty much inventing the tomb rating as a, as a genre for both video games, books, fan fiction, whatever you like. It was so groundbreaking. And on top of that, it's just a red-hot film. It's so much fun, and I can watch it and watch it and watch it. And that, to me, man, that's a great damn film. And, I, and I, I measure it this way, and you tell me what you think of this. It's so much fun to watch by yourself, but it's even more fun to watch with a whole bunch of like-minded people. Like yeah. you and I sitting and watching that movie would just be a hoot. Man, we'd quote the whole film, like just about. There's no doubt we would annoy the uninitiated. But um, yeah. these are the sorts of things that I would love to do, you know, as we as we go global, like get cinemas and show these movies. Yeah, <laughs> you, really? you and I do annoying <laughs> commentaries. <laughs> That'd just be great. You can sit here and listen to G-Man and Peebos just quote the film. Yeah. But I think the thing about that too is that it's got enough gravity and enough weight that there'd be moments where you are so familiar with that you do want to quote the hell out of it. But I guarantee there'd be moments where I stop and I shut up and I pay attention and I just soak. I agree. And that says something about that, man. I Whereas I don't think I can do that with Star Wars. I, can't, I, I would just quote the hell out of that the whole way through. There wouldn't necessarily be spots where I go, oh, all the intrigue has got Yeah, me. I agree, dude. But, I mean, for me, uh, the last challenging statement or questioning probe, I'm going to probe you. Um, we've mentioned rectums and rings. God damn it. In a top five, dude, where do you put this? Um, top five films. Because you know if you're going to say it's a three, I'm going to say, well, bloody hell, dude, what beats it? So I'm just wondering. Oh, well, Jesus, man, I don't... That's hard, isn't it? I don't know which, which order my top five are in, by the way. It's not... I it's, don't even know equal, either. Yeah. Equal measures is what my top five is, and even my top ten. Is it in the top It five? has to be, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely in the top five, man. Big trouble, little China. It's sort of, you know, can't trump that. But it's got its own je ne sais quoi, and that's what we love about it, man. So Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I love this. And thanks very much for today, man. This has been an absolute hoot. An absolute hoot. So, so well done. Yeah, look, this is great. And stay tuned, fellow Manchildian participants, candidates, citizens. We're going to probably unpack, yeah, more of the backwana that was the the uh, the occultism of, of the Hitler and so much more. So much like some of our previous episodes on space or ancient antiquity, we're just, we're just delving our toe in the water here. But as always, we are going to try and explore these, these concepts through the lens of, you know, a childish uh, lens of movies it's a very very gentle entry point you know i think as far as it goes when you're <laughs> going to do some deep cuts like we're going to do like you need to ground yourself there needs to be an anchor point and today was raiders man and anchor that's what, what a point 
Someone has been whipped with a funny stick this day, my bro. I love I'm, that. I well, thanks very much, P Boss. Yeah, uh, my name's G Man. You've been listening to the Man Charlian candidate. We'll be back next time with some amaze balls entertainment, some philosophy, some pop culture, and all round general fun. Yeah. So like us on the FB pages. Download us, subscribe, donate if you fancy it, and we will catch you next time on whichever podcasting service that you choose to use. Peace out, homies. Lovely. And you just wait till we get the cinemas, guys. It's going to happen. Toodles.